The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, opens with this paragraph. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. It's a complex paragraph, I realize, and maybe it might be shocking as you hear it for the first time, if, you hear it, if you're hearing it for the first time, to hear the phrase, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. We meet in this place every week. As a church, led by pastor and staff, ruled by congregation, it meets together, spirit-endowed believers, we have decided that first and foremost, God should be honored in the praise that we bring. That's our desire. Hopefully, that we're all on the same page there. That our desire is to see God's name lifted high. So that means a couple of things. First, it means that our praise has to be true. That what we say, the prayers we pray, the songs we sing, the preaching that it must be true, that it must be scriptural, that when we open the Bible, what we read there must be explained thoroughly, and we must understand it as it was intended to be understood by the author that penned it. Not only the man who wrote it down, but the God who superintended that writing. Our worship must be true. When Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that, a day is coming when God's worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's at the very least what He meant. That it has to be true. So that becomes our number one priority. Then second, our goal is to stir the affections of the people in the congregation for the love of the Lord. There is, a, there is an end goal. So the phrase that we often say is that our desire is to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. Making and maturing disciples for the glory of God. So we want to exposit the scriptures, we want to pray the scriptures, we want to sing the scriptures, we want to teach them well, because our aim is the glory of God. And then, as part of making and maturing disciples, we want to stir your affections for the Lord. Now, there's lots of songs that we sing on the radio when we're cruising down the road. We pay maybe some attention to the lyrics or maybe no attention to the lyrics, but we sing them nonetheless on our way to wherever we're going down the road. And some of those songs do not make it in a church service, and there's a reason why those songs don't make it in a church service, because they don't teach anything of any value or worth. Our desire through the songs that we sing and through the songs that we don't sing 
is to teach accurately the Word of God through song. And by that, we make immature disciples for the glory of God. Now understand that our goal is not simply making and maturing disciples. If we hit that target, we would have fallen short. Making and maturing disciples is the arc of the arrow. But the target is the glory of God. That means that disciples can be made, and they can be some, something of matured, they can be brought to Christ, but their growth can be stunted by whether or not the Word of God is actually taught in truth to them. Whether it's understood by them. Whether they continue to grow in it. Disciples made and matured for the glory of God means that they're grown in truth. Because the primary target for us is the glory of God, not the person in the pew. The person in the pew is to be grown and matured so that they might live for the glory of God. Why? Because getting back to the quote of what John Piper had said, and he opened his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, that God is ultimate, not man. So the purpose of our worship services here is not merely to serve you and to make you happy. The purpose of our worship services is to make God happy, to sing praise to His name, to lift up our hearts and glorify Him. That happens in all the prayers that we should be praying, and all the songs we should be singing, and all the sermons we should be preaching, and all the texts we should be reading. In everything we do, that is our aim. And by that, we hope that those who are gathered here with like mind and spirit your souls will be uh, stirred, your affections will be stirred for the Lord because truth is given to you. That's the desire. At the end of any worship service, we hope to demonstrate the glory of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ and make the aim of our worship service about Him. But here's the catch. I want to make this worship service about Jesus for your sake. I want to make this worship service and every worship service about Jesus for your sake. Because I think when Christ is magnified and the glory of God is expounded, the people called by His name, gain. When the glory of Christ is expounded and lifted high, when the name of Christ is lifted high, His people gain. Now you might think those two things are mutually exclusive. How can that possibly be? It's either about Christ or it's about me. You're either seeking to draw me in, bring me in, keep me engaged, keep me entertained, Keep the sermon so short, keep the prayer so short, keep the song so upbeat so that I can stay with it. Or you're about Jesus. The two can't be both had at the same time. And I think that's not true. And more than that, 
I think this passage that we're in affirms that aim of our worship service, that aim of our church activities, that aim of our Bible studies, that aim of every aspect of our individual lives. I think this passage is affirming that notion of Christian worship. There's a moment in this passage in verse 12 where it's almost as if the scales fall off David's eyes. And he's able to see for the first time, maybe, what God is doing. Now, maybe it's not the first time, but it seems like that in the passage. Look at verse 12. It says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. He exalted David and exalted David's kingdom. Why? For the blessing of the people. I want to just take a moment to remember what we've been talking about over the last few chapters in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Remember the collection, uh, the connection between Christ and David that we've been exploring over the last 30 weeks. We're watching in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel more than just a collection of stories that an author wrote one time and said, here, this is information about the past. These are some stories that took place years ago. What we're actually watching here take place is the next phase in God's grand plan to establish His kingdom on the earth. And the end of David's kingdom, the aim of David's kingdom, is to eradicate sin from his people. That's God's aim in establishing David's kingdom. You realize that? His goal, his grand plan, is to eradicate sin from his people, to alleviate the fear of death, to give them a king who will live forever, for evil to be gone, and to bring his people to eternal life. That is the aim that he's, he's going for. That's the target that he's aiming at. David is but the arrow, the very beginning of the arrow, the, the, the knob of the arrow, if you will, the notch. He's not going to accomplish it. The tip of the spear is going to be accomplished by Christ. But remember, this is the aim. This is the target that he's going for. This is how his people were created. Innocent. Free from evil and sin. Free from the fear of death. But man proved he couldn't hold on to it. Adam proved he couldn't hold on to it. And so we prove every single day we could not hold on to it either. So one phase of making a people, uh, uh, one phase of his kingdom being established is first him making a people. He comes to Abraham and he establishes a family in Abraham. And with that family came a whole host of things. With that family came a culture, birthrights, blessings, all kinds of things that go with that culture. Along with that family came then eventually a tradition, the law came to that family through Moses. Then came with that law feasts and festivals, things like the Passover lamb and the Day of Atonement. And all of those things 
whether they were traditions, whether they were birthrights and blessings, whether they were part of the culture, whether they were part of the feast and the festivals, all of those things that God gave to the children of Israel was all preparing them for the coming eventually of Jesus and the atonement that he would accomplish for his people on the cross. Prior to all of that, they would have no conception for this man named Jesus. Had he dropped down in human history at the time of Abraham, everybody would have been like, who is this guy and why is he here? And I don't even understand the need for atonement. But over the course of 1,800, 2,000 years, God is teaching his people what it means that they are far from Eden. That they need their sins to be atoned for. So another phase in establishing his kingdom on the earth is the beginning of the monarchy of David, which we've been looking at over the last 30 weeks. David is the beginning of the line that would eventually lead to Jesus. And so, as we've seen in the Psalms that we go through during the summers, and as we're seeing here in Samuel, David is a type of what the ultimate king would be like. We might use the word in today's vernacular, we might use the word prototype. A company might make a phone and they might make a prototype that doesn't look anything like, really, the end product. But it gives you a general idea of what that product is going to be like when it comes to fruition. David, if you will, is kind of a prototype of Christ to come. But he's one of many prototypes for Christ. The Passover lamb a prototype of Christ to come. The Day of Atonement, a prototype of Christ's eventual sacrifice. David is a type of what the ultimate king will be like. So there are connections that we make in a passage like this to Jesus, and we make it unabashedly, unashamedly. We draw connections straight from Jesus, from, from David, to the cross. Both are ruling God's kingdom. David is first and is, is, is but the beginning. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And so, my aim this morning in this passage is to show you first how the king's glory in David is to the benefit of his people. First in David, and then it's ultimately true in Jesus. So we're going to draw a straight line from the people in the Old Testament who benefited from the reign of David and how God is blessing his people through David and draw a straight line to the cross where you're going to see that that's still true of you today under the reign of the ultimate Messiah in Christ. And the first thing we're going to see here in this passage is that God has established his king to receive glory. God has established his king to receive glory. I want you to see what God gives to David in this scene. First, he gives him a people and a land, and we see that in verses 1 to 10. Now, you remember, Ishbosheth is dead. We, 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 uh, last chapter, we left Ishbosheth. He was murdered. He was, remember, Saul's son. He was crowned king, and he was kind of essentially taking the place of David. And all the northern tribes, the eleven tribes, they went with Ishbosheth, 
And they followed after his, his kingdom. But now he is dead, and all the elders of Israel come to David here in the first few verses, and they anoint him king over all of Israel. And they all join with him. Ishbosheth is dead, and now we hitch our wagons to Jesus. I mean, to, to David. And he was 30 years old when he began to reign, which terrifies me. I can't imagine how he did that. And he reigned for 40 years after that. So what is his first act? Now that he's king and he's got all the tribes of Israel underneath his reign, what is his first act? Well, he takes the men of Israel to Jerusalem to conquer the Jebusites and to kick them out of Israel's territory. And we see that in verses 6 to 10. I want you to look with me there. It says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, this is obviously probably the strangest part of this passage. What in the world does this mean? David's soul hates the lame and the blind? I mean, that is, seems to be the most lack of compassion that, that any king who's following after God could possibly exhibit. How can he hate the lame and the blind? So it's obviously a strange passage, but if you slow down, and break it down verse by verse, it actually will make some sense to you, I think. So first, you've got there in verse 6, I want you to put your eyes on the text as we just go through this line by line. In verse 6, David and his men approach the Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem, and the Jebusites probably are inside the city. There's some, most likely some kind of, of perimeter around the outside, some kind of garrison, fortress, some sort of wall or something like that. And, and remember, Jerusalem is, is elevated compared to the territory around it. So they have the strong position of being at the top of the hill. They've got the high ground, in other words. And so David brings his army up there and they, they lob a taunt to him, whether they send messengers out or they say it from inside the city, I don't know, but, but they, they lob a taunt. And it might sound something like this in modern vernacular, your pathetic little army doesn't stand a chance against us. We won't even send out our army against you. We'll send our blind and our lame who are notoriously not good at combat. All right, just note so what you have in this passage is the, the term blind and lame are used by David later on, not referring to actual blind and lame people, but referring to the Jebusites themselves who came out to fight him. Right? The Jebusites tell him in a taunting kind of fashion, we'll send our blind and our lame out and they'll take care of you. And David then uses that against them later on when he defeats them. So this is an example of, of 1000 BC trash talking. All right? As a notable trash talker myself, 
I can recognize it when I see it. And just like the Jebusites, when I am the least good at something is when I trash talk the most. All right? So you can be sure if I'm trash talking, I'm not very good. And if I say nothing, I'm going to win. All right? Just know that. Okay. So they're trash talking, and David is going to use their trash talking against them later on like a Taylor Swift song. All right. Some of you didn't get that, and I'm very proud that you didn't get that. I'm glad. <laughs> so David attacks the Jebusite stronghold. And it's apparent that he did so by exposing a weakness that perhaps they knew about, but they didn't think anybody else knew about. And that was, it, look, if you got the, the high position, it's great militarily. The one thing it's not great for, retrieving water. All right? Water does not run uphill. So you've got to go get it. Okay? So what David knew about, that perhaps the Jebusites didn't know he knew about, was that there is a water shaft leading up to the top of the hill that either they used to lower their buckets down or perhaps they used to go and take some of the water. And there's debate about what David exactly did here. He either sent his men up the water shaft and, surprise, popped out in the middle of the city and caught them all unaware, or he just snip the bucket that they lowered down to get the water. Whatever the case would be, the water shaft was the main point of weakness. David knew it, and the Jebusites, once David found that weakness, were now on equal footing with Israel, and Israel just whooped them, soundly defeated them. And they had been defeated before, and Jerusalem had been, had been conquered in some measure before, but never had they been cast out of the city. And David came in, took Jerusalem, and sent them out. Now David turns their taunt against them, and he says in verse 8, look at it with me, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him give up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are uh, get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. So it's not the actual lame and blind who are hated by David's soul, but the Jebusites whom he attacked. Or even greater than that, the enemies of God, as we see in Psalms and things like that. His point is something like, if you weren't so blind and lame, you would have covered your weak spots. But me getting to your weak spot proves that you are indeed blind and lame. You couldn't see me coming, and you lack the ability to do anything about it. So finally, at the end of verse 8, there is this phrase that is widely then used. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. The meaning is not that the literal blind and lame are not welcome in Jerusalem. Or that the blind and the lame are not welcome into the temple. Or that the blind and the lame are not welcome in the kingdom of David. The meaning is not that. The meaning is the enemies of God are not welcome here. If you come into Jerusalem and you're seeking to be an enemy of God, you are not welcome here. That being the case, this is more than ironic. That as a forerunner of Christ, this phrase might be attributed to David. See, Christ, who would come along to fulfill all the promises made to David, would literally purge the blind and the lame 
and purge the, blind, the, the enemies of God out of the kingdom of God. But in Christ's case, the blind and the lame and the enemies of God are not purged by excommunication, but through healing and through a new heart. So Christ comes along. You see the connection? between what David is doing here, the phrase that is taken up and recorded then in 2 Samuel, and then a thousand plus years later finds its fulfillment in David's great-great-grandson. But the twist is not that he kills them with the tip of the spear, but with a cross. So, one blessing the way God has established his king to receive glory is first, he gives him a people and a land. But second, he gives him tribute from the nations and builds him a house. Look at verses 11 to 16. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord uh, had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who are born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elisha, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Moms, you're looking for names for your children. There you go. So David has united the people of Israel. He's taken possession of Jerusalem. And what happens as a result of his newfound land, newfound city, newfound people, is that Hiram, king of Tyre, which is a pagan nation to the north, sends him tribute so that he can build an impressive house to go with his impressive status as king of Israel. Now, this is important because it establishes the context that we find that pivotal verse there in verse 12. One thing that I'm convinced of in 1st and 2nd Samuel more than any probably more than any other book in the New or Old Testament is that the author chapter after chapter seems to give away the exact reason why he's telling you this story. And I think that reason is there in verse 12 and what what it tells us is that when Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons to build David a house, that is the moment where the lights came on for David and he knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. It was when the rest of the nations began to praise and give glory to God's king that he realized his kingdom had been exalted for the sake of the nation of Israel. That being the case, there are two aspects of this passage. The first is obviously the nation sending him tribute. And therefore, David's glory is increasing. People are no noting his name and are praising him even as the king of Israel. But the second is there at the, the next part of this passage where he takes wives for himself there in verse 13. So David's glory is increasing, but this second act that David did is he takes more wives and concubines for himself. And I've, I've discussed polygamy in the Bible on several occasions, and, and doing so is never easy because no matter what I say about it, it's, it's never going to be enough. <laughs> 
there's always going to be more questions that come to mind. And it's never going to really solve the issue. And I don't know that I'm really going to do that much more here because something always more can be said. But there are two things that I want to remind you of as we look at just that passage. And mainly because you encounter people, I'm sure, from time to time who might be curious about the gospel but might go back to the Bible and go, wait a minute, what's this polygamy stuff in the Old Testament? What are you doing now condemning people who are sexually immoral when you got in, your, in the book here, King David, you praise him, and, 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 and is he doing the exact same thing? So I want to remind you of what Scripture says. The first thing is that Deuteronomy 17, 17 expressly outlaws what's happening in this passage. David's taking wives and concubines, and the law of Moses condemns him for doing that. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says... And he shall not acquire, this is the king of Israel, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So the first thing that you have to remember when you encounter this passage is that the very law condemns David for doing it. The second thing to remember is that anytime somebody takes more than one wife for themselves, it never turns out well. Ever. It's always bad. Abraham? Yeah. Elkanah, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, it turned out bad for him. The wives hate each other and it's tearing his family apart. Every single time. And I will tell you, perhaps David most of all, this whole polygamy stuff comes back to bite him right in the rear end. So with that in mind, I think it must be noted the differences between verses 11 and 12 and 13. If we're looking through those lenses, polygamy is outlawed in the law. It never works out well. Looking through that lens, look at verses 11 and 12 compared to verse 13. Hiram sent there in verse 11, right? Hiram sent. Carpenters and masons built. Then look at verse 12. The Lord established, the Lord exalted. Do you see all this that's happening? All of this is happening to David. It's all a blessing of the Lord. David now sees that, that this is the reason he's exalting him. The Lord is doing all these things for David. Look at verse 13. David took. It doesn't say wives were given. It says David took. And I wonder if it's not the author's way of setting up this tragic fall that would come upon David's kingdom, which will come through his greed and his insatiable lust for women. In fact, the prophet Nathan is going to come to him. God is going to speak through the prophet Nathan and condemn him specifically for that, for his insatiable lust for women. You had everything, and yet you could not Keep away from this greed and this lust that continued to pursue you every step of the way. And yet it never satisfied until it led you to commit murder for it. It never satisfied. It still wasn't enough. So God is still establishing him as king. He's receiving glory. And we see that in him getting a people and a land. We see, we see that in him getting tribute from the nations. And we see that finally in him getting divine aid in 17 to 25. 
So David leads his people out to fight the Philistines, and he, he consults with the Lord the first time, and the Lord grants him permission, go and, and take the Philistines, and he, and he gets victory. And what, is, what happens at the very end? He takes all the idols of the Philistines, and he gets them out of the land. So David is doing the Lord's work. He consults with the Lord the second time, but this time the Lord directs him around behind the Philistines and he sits and waits. And it says in verse 24 that you'll attack when you hear the sound of marching on the tops of the balsam trees. And this is how David is to know. And it says that the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. See, this is a tremendous part of the passage because it, it tells us a couple of things. First, that David is going in and he's doing the Lord's work. He is reversing the effects of the fall in the promised land. He is pushing out the evil. He is pushing out the wicked nations. And he is ridding the nation of all their idolatrous works, all their idols. He's taking out of the land. He's capturing them and getting rid of them. Not only that, but in a second, he is also waiting on the Lord to go and do the fighting for him. And it says specifically that this is how he knows that the Lord is doing the fighting. So what we see in this passage is that, the, that God is actually fighting on behalf of David. Is David getting all this notoriety and all this praise and acclamation because he's so strong and he's so great and he's so mighty? Absolutely not. He's getting all this because the Lord is actually giving it to him. That's what I want you to see, that it's the Lord's intention to exalt David among the nations. He's giving him people in a land. He's giving him tribute from the nations and building him a strong house. He's giving him divine aid. He's establishing his king to receive glory. But you might ask, well, what's that to me? What's that to the people of Israel? David, great, is getting glory and he's getting praise and he's getting honor and, and God is exalting him and he's getting the penthouse suite at the top of, of Mount Zion looking down at all the peons around him. He's praised for his victories in battle. But what does that matter to the people? Isn't that what today's culture is saying? They're saying, well, we don't want people at the top we don't want people at the bottom. We want everybody on equal footing. That's the premise of communism and socialism, is essentially put everybody on equal footing. The category of David being at the top, and that somehow that is for the good of the people at the bottom, is asinine to today's culture. That doesn't even make sense. How can that possibly be? It's either for David's sake, or it's for my sake. You can't have it both ways. Which brings us to the second point, and this will be quicker. His people are blessed because of their covenantal union with their king. Now you may have figured when I went through this that I skipped the first few verses there, which kind of give away the story. That's why I skipped it didn't want you to know where I was going. The people are blessed because of their covenantal union with their king. Look at verse 1. They come to him, and the, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. How is it that David can be exalted and all of his people benefit 
Isn't he the one that's exalted? Why do we benefit? The reason you benefit is because you are united to David. His exaltation is your exaltation. His triumph in battle is your triumph in battle. His help from God is your help from God. The reason that you receive God's protection is because of his favor for his king, David. You see that? That is the reason that they are are receiving a blessing from God. It's because it's through David that they receive that blessing. It's because of God's favor of David. It's because of God's exaltation of David and his giving to David help and victory in battle that they receive those blessings. And don't you hear here in verse 1 that sound calling all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God puts a deep sleep on the man and takes from his side a rib and fashions for him a helper in Eve and she is presented before him by God himself and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He is setting from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, a covenant of marriage and this is what it looks like, one flesh. When the husband succeeds, the wife succeeds. We are sharing of the same DNA. This is a deeply held covenant. What the nation of Israel is coming to, playing the role of Eve, is they present themselves before the new Adam in David and they say, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. See, it's not David calling out to the nation of Israel. It's Eve coming before Adam saying, we are your bone and your flesh. When you benefit we benefit. We want your exaltation. We want your praise. We want your glory to go forth to the nations because when you succeed, when you are blessed, when you are glorified, when you are praised, it is every bit for our benefit. But you understand this relationship that Israel has with David can only ever be a temporary union. And the reason is because the, content, the, the contingency for all of this blessing from God was David's obedience to God's commands. And that is a burden no man can bear. See, even as a new Adam, he still can't fulfill what was commanded to Adam from the beginning. David is still going to fall, and we've seen the cracks already beginning to form in the foundation. David is not the Messiah. He is a forerunner to the Messiah. He knows that he is not the Messiah. There is one to come in Christ who will come and perform perfectly the works of the law, who will do everything that is required for righteousness. You understand that it is paramount that we get as a church body that Christ lived on this earth perfectly. And every time you hear Christ talked about in the secular world, they're always going to seek to undermine his righteous life. Yeah. Well, he took a wife, and who knows if he even had a marriage there or something, had a little thing on the side or something with Mary Magdalene and all this other stuff. Everything they seek to do is undermine Christ's righteous life. You talk to a conservative Jew this day, how they understand Christ is a rebel against the kingdom of Rome who was put to death as a rebel. Why? Because you have to undermine Christ's righteous life. But you see, for the Christian, it is paramount that we understand 
that Christ came to this earth and he didn't fail like David and he didn't fail like Adam and he didn't fail like anybody from David's line but performed perfectly every aspect of the law so that all of the blessings that God would ever give to his king continued to flow. Everything that God would ever give, divine aid, a people, a place, a covenant, uh, every blessing that God could possibly ever give to anyone, Christ righteously deserved. But instead of living in the penthouse, he went to the grave. And in dying for the sins of his people and cleansing them forevermore from unrighteousness, God now takes that heap of rewards that were given to him and bestows those on those who were at one point his enemies. Jebusites like you and me. Now we receive these blessings in Christ And then what God did, if that wasn't enough, is he looks to his people who are now righteous, and then he looks to Christ who has died for their sins, but being in the grave, he committed no sins in and of himself, and the grave therefore could not hold him. So then he raises him from the dead and exalts him to a position where he now has a name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And now his exaltation as seen in his resurrection puts him in the place of king where he sits and reigns at the right hand of the Father. You understand, this is the essence of the gospel. And the more glory and praise Christ gets the more his body benefits. So what does that mean for you and me? That means that our lives are now freed to be lived for the glory of Christ. We don't have to live for our own name. We don't have to care if people drag our name through the mud, if they despise us because of who we are or what we believe. I don't care if people think I'm intelligent or if they think I believe in myths and fairy tales. It doesn't matter to me if my name is made famous, if I'm given prestige and fortune. It doesn't matter if I get fame. It only matters that Christ gets glory. And believe it or not, He gets glory through both his saints proclaiming his name and through their death. Believe it or not, he got glory from every martyr that ever went to the grave who stand now under the altar crying out to him, how long before you avenge our blood on the earth? They lived for the glory of Christ. And that's what he's calling you to, to live for Christ's glory. You can give up the desire to live for your own name. Because living for the glory of another benefits you in every way. But a word to you who would come 
to the body of Christ and thinking that by association with other believers, you might be found on judgment day not guilty by association. It doesn't work that way. If you would be found in eternal life, you must come to God's king in covenant. You must come saying, I am your bone and your flesh. I am a member of your body. You must confess through repentance of sin that you are unworthy to be called a Christian. That you are unworthy of forgiveness. And yet cling to his grace and his mercy that he is freely bestowed on you merely because he is kind. This is what we're gathering to celebrate. That he has redeemed us. Why me? I don't know. Why you? We don't know. The only answer we're given is because he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we come together in worship giving praise to the king. That is what our lives are about. That is what our church is about. That is what our worship service is about. Why? Because when the king receives glory, his body receives gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the grace that you've given to us in Christ. We are people that do not deserve it. We are a very imperfect church body, and we know it. And yet, through your mercy on the cross, you have called us sons and daughters. It's a work we did not deserve. And we live now in the blessing of Christ, forever wondering why. Bring our hearts to true praise. Let us lift up songs of joy in celebration over your mercy bestowed on us in the cross of Jesus, we pray. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.